0: You have now entered the House of Mystery, with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren, heard on Casey. FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and one
2: hundred five oh AM Palm Springs. Uh, Joining us now for the interview is Mark Potok. How are you doing today, Mark?
1: Oh, I'm doing very well, thanks, and great to hear from you.
2: Well, Mark, um, lots going on in the States and the world, and... um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some history, um, this, about Timothy McVeigh and Ruby Ridge and that whole um, thing that happened uh, 25 years ago. And um, if you think it's really gotten better or worse or if it's changed, or we kind of go from there. But um, what was your first connection with uh, the whole Oklahoma bombing?
1: Well, uh, I was a reporter uh, at USA Today at the time. Uh, I was sitting at home uh, in Dallas, Texas. I ran the Southwest Bureau out of my house, uh, and the phone rang, and it was my editor uh, in Washington saying that there had been some kind of explosion in Oklahoma City. Nobody knew if it was a gas explosion or what it was, uh, but something was going on. And, uh, you know, she'd be right back to me. You know, about three minutes later, the phone rang again, and it was, you know, you've got to go to Oklahoma City now. Hmm. So that's how it started for me.
2: And, and now, um, Timothy McVeigh, um, what, what, was, what was his design on this? What was his plan? Uh, what did he hope to gain from blowing up the building?
1: Well, I think he clearly uh, hoped to start a war against the government and was by the time he died, uh, by the time he was executed, uh, it became quite clear that he had failed. But the idea was uh, that the Oklahoma City bombing was payback, it was dirty for dirty, as he said, uh, to the government for the government's role in the Waco uh, disaster exactly two years before. So it was a revenge strike on the government, but it was meant to attack specifically uh, law enforcement agencies uh, associated with the Waco debacle, uh, and more than that, as I say, to start uh, to kick off some war against the government.
2: Now, on on Waco itself, what what do you think the the problem was? Like, why why was there the the um, hate group toward the government? Like, what? What was it about Waco that they didn't like?
1: Well, I covered Waco as a reporter from the first day to the last. And, you know, essentially what Waco was, was it was a a group of people uh, who lived on um, what really was a compound, uh, something like 150 people just outside Waco, Texas. This was a very bizarre offshoot uh, of the Seventh-day Adventist church uh... they called themselves branch davidians and uh... the person who was leading the branch davidians at the time uh, of the waco debacle uh, was a guy named david koresh uh... originally named vernon howell uh... koresh preached to his followers uh... the uh... confrontation with babylon meaning the government was was very near would happen at any moment uh, and that they would have to meet the force of Babylon, of the government, with force of their own. Meanwhile, uh, the Davidians were involved very heavily in uh, gun sales. Uh, they bought and sold weapons, uh, which in and of itself uh, was perfectly legal, but what they were involved in was, among other things, manufacturing, actually using a metal lathe, uh in one of their barns to manufacture fully automatic weapons that is to say machine guns uh they also manufactured uh silencers for these machine guns you know and in fact despite uh, conspiracy theorists uh, claims that you know they didn't do anything illegal and the search warrant uh, was invalid in fact after the waco compound burned uh after some uh 51 days of uh standoff with the government uh investigators found 48 fully automatic uh, machine guns in the ashes. Uh, in any event, what happened briefly was the government did uh, get a search warrant uh, and then uh, carried it out, uh, as it turned out, despite uh, the fact that their uh, raid had been compromised a short time earlier, about 45 minutes before the planned raid. Uh, which was uh, on february twenty eighth of nineteen ninety three uh... it was a a huge disaster uh... as the uh, atf it was the uh, bureau of alcohol back on firearms that carried out the raid. as the atf approached uh... the compound uh... carrying a lot of agents something like fifty agents uh... in a couple of cattle trailers uh, the Davidians opened fire. There's some dispute about, exactly who fired shoot first. It is possible that the ATF shot a dog, uh, that ran out towards them, and that set off the, uh, the kind of conflagration. In other words, but in in, in any case, in just a matter of seconds, uh, it became a full-scale shooting war, at the end of which, uh, six Davidians, uh, had been killed and four ATF agents had been killed. Uh, the really remarkable thing was that because, uh, the Davidians had prepared uh... so sort of assiduously in such a warlike manner for the arrival of the ATF uh... they essentially won the battle uh... and the ATF uh... much to their sort of everlasting humiliation was forced to uh... uh back away hands in the air uh... you know weapons back in their holsters and so on uh... in order to achieve a ceasefire And then what followed was a fifty one day standoff Uh, that ultimately ended on April 19th of 1993, uh, when the government finally uh, injected tear gas into the compound, started to break down walls in order to try and force the Davidians out. Uh, And as that operation was going on, uh, the compound essentially burst into flames. The claims have been made uh, by conspiracy theorists for years and years and years now. entire industry built up around these theories. Uh, that the government started the fire or the government murdered people uh, with guns as they were coming out of the building trying to escape. All that, uh, frankly, is pure BS. Uh, In fact, the evidence is essentially incontrovertible uh, that the Davidians started the fire themselves. Uh, You know, it's unclear exactly what what they meant to burn themselves all up, but ultimately it was a kind of mass suicide. Uh, in fact, 20 of the uh, about 74 Davidians who died in the fire uh, were found later to have been shot at point-blank range, in other words, executed by other Davidians uh, as the fire closed in around them.
2: Wow. And now, so, so they actually were blaming the government. Now, were there particular people in the government? Like, who who is it when they say the government? Like With Timothy McVeigh, was he thinking of Janet Reno, Bill Clinton? Was there... Particular people, or was it just the whole government?
1: Well, uh, you know uh, Janet Reno came to be the kind of the face of Waco. Uh, you know, I thought Janet Reno was a reasonably thoughtful person and and uh, you know certainly did not try and uh, create danger uh, to the children, to the people inside uh, the compound. but yeah, Janet Reno was the face of it. Bill Clinton was certainly seen as an enemy as well. and ultimately, what Waco became, Uh, in the eyes and the minds of the radical right was uh, the primary example of what the government supposedly was willing to do uh, to people with kind of heterodox uh, religious or political ideas who were involved heavily in guns. So essentially the narrative became this is what the government is willing to do uh, to its own citizens, engage in mass murder, uh, simply because they didn't like the fact that they uh, sold guns and were into uh, weaponry and so on and also had a rather bizarre uh, theology.
2: Well, the Ruby Ridge um, uh, you know, event, I guess you'd call it, the Ruby Ridge um, thing that happened uh, was another one that they jumped onto as well.
1: That's right. Ruby Ridge came about a year before Waco. It was in 1992, um, and, you know, it's frequently cited as one of the precursors to Waco and then the Oklahoma City bombing, and there's some truth to that. However, you know, I was a newspaper reporter at the time, uh, and when Ruby Ridge, well, let me first say what it was. So essentially, what it was was there's a white supremacist man named Randy Weaver uh, and his uh, small family who lived in a little cabin on top of a uh, kind of mountain ridgetop that was known at least colloquially as Ruby Ridge in northern Idaho. Uh, He, Weaver at one point, sold a sawed-off shotgun to an undercover agent. Uh, The government then uh, arrested him uh, and tried to convince him to become an informer for the government uh, and to infiltrate the nearby compound of the Aryan nations, which at the time uh, was uh, the leading, or certainly in any case the best-known uh, neo-Nazi group in America, a group that you know explicitly kind of worshipped Adolf Hitler. Weaver refused. He was a white supremacist himself. Um, and ultimately he retreated uh, to this cabin on top of the mountain with a lot of guns, and his family and one family friend where they were surrounded uh, and uh, a huge standoff took place there, too. Uh, Much shorter than than Waco, but a standoff that lasted for, you know, over a couple of weeks. Uh, During that standoff, uh, well, in the initial conference, there was first uh, a confrontation one day uh, when uh, Randy Weaver's uh, young son heard their dog barking in the woods and ran out into the woods and ran into... Uh, a couple of U.S. marshals with weapons. Uh, there was a shootout, uh, and Sam Weaver, uh, the young kid, was killed. Uh, a few days later, uh, a sniper uh, with the government shot and killed uh, uh, Sammy Weaver's wife, Vicki Weaver, who was the real uh, kind of hardline white supremacist ideologue of the family uh ultimately uh they were talked into there were negotiations went on and they gave themselves up uh and you know there was a remarkable kind of aftermath in the courts in which uh, Samuel Weaver was charged with murder uh for for uh, shooting an ATF agent uh and and then acquitted completely so the thing that i want to say though it was really uh... It, it became a very big deal on the radical right uh... it wasn't so much that uh, every american was following the ruby ridge stuff really weren't. uh... it wasn't on television every night at all but then a year later a little less than a year later the waco confrontation happened and that was quite different that was uh... televised every single night on all three network news shows uh, just an enormous amount of attention all around the world, and when finally the Waco building, the compound burned, uh, you know, uh, virtually the entire nation watched it on television. So Waco uh, spread that. And so although yes, it's true that Ruby Ridge was a kind of catalyst on the right, uh, it caused uh, uh, a bunch of white supremacists to get together and talk about, you know, how can we react to this government which is murdering us and so on. Uh, it was only with Waco that millions and millions and millions uh, of Americans began to believe uh, that the government really had carried out this slaughter uh, and that this showed essentially how wicked uh, the, the government was.
2: Now, do you think these events, especially Waco, do you think it has a huge influence on today, like a lot of the people in the right and the, and the kind of uh, Alex Jonesy sort of world, um, still use Waco so you think it's kind of like the the base of, of their hatred toward other people
1: I don't know if it's the basis of their hatred I mean uh, the, the far right in this country has despised the federal government since uh, the civil war uh, and you know and up to the present moment uh, for its role in the civil war freeing the slaves for its role in the civil rights movement in the 60s and 50s uh... you know kind of standing up for uh, black voters and so on uh... but yes uh... waco is incredibly important It's sort of the touchstone of the movement because uh, you know it was this incredibly dramatic event virtually every american along with much of the world saw it happen uh... and ultimately uh... polls showed that enormous numbers of people believed uh... you know that the government had carried out murder at the time, uh, right after Waco, I remember a newspaper I was working for ran a poll and it found that 37% uh, of Americans felt that the government uh, was an imminent threat to their lives and civil liberties, right? In other words, the government was the enemy. So Waco uh, was a kind of high-octane fuel poured on the ideas uh pushed by uh Reagan and others that the federal government was a sort of beast that needed to be as one of them said drowned in a bathtub uh that that the government was not there to help you at all but had become uh an enemy of the people and you know uh, uh let me say uh, you know the claims about Waco are utterly false uh but that you know the idea that the government was incredibly uh, wicked and murderous in its actions and yet uh, that yes, Waco still holds that position in the minds of a huge number of people.
3: Well that's an interesting point that you bring up. You talk about how this sort of alternate reality back then was fueling this hostility and rage towards the government and now it's 25 years later and fake news plays such a role in the opinions of so many Americans right now. How do you think that's developed over the years from, you know, believing that Waco was something orchestrated by a government out to get people, and now, I mean, that's tenfold. That belief has just grown and grown Well, it's a
1: fairly straight line, really, when you think about the Alex Joneses of the world, uh, you know, claiming that the Sandy Hook massacre of of schoolchildren was really all, uh, Um, you know, carried out by child actors and so on. In other words, that all of these events, uh, all of these mass shootings uh... And terrorist attacks uh... and so on are really uh... if you only knew what was really happening are really the government at work uh... in various terrible ways i mean just to jump ahead to oklahoma city uh... the oklahoma city bombing in nineteen ninety five uh, which was you know directly payback uh... for waco uh... you know almost immediately after that bomb went off uh... the conspiracy theorists got to work uh... concluding ultimately that bill clinton had that bo- that building bombed mm-hmm. uh, and that the reason that president clinton was so willing to murder hundred and sixty eight of his fellow citizens was that this would be a way of terrifying the american public into accepting draconian you know anti-democratic terrorism legislation mm-hmm. so the essential theory was that ultimately clinton uh you know the forces of the political left were coming for the guns of all Americans uh and they would do this under uh as i say some kind of draconian anti-terrorism legislation so the whole wake Waco- the whole uh, oklahoma city bombing in other words uh according to the conspiracy theorists was a pretext in order to seize regular americans weapons and ultimately uh to shepherd all of those who resisted that gun seizure into concentration camps that had supposedly secretly been built over the previous uh, 10 or 20 years by fema Mm -hmm. the federal emergency management agency
3: there you go So you know
1: a whole series of conspiracy theories and you know that that is what we're living with the legacy of that today the president of the united states you know as you mentioned talks about the press as the enemy of the people talks about uh, you know, I mean, right today, uh, you know, it's uh, everyone who's into impeachment is, you know, actually a vile traitor and so on, uh, who maybe needs to be put in the electric chair. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I think that the the whole series of events we're talking about, from Ruby Ridge to Waco to Oklahoma City and all that has followed, you know, culminating, I guess, most recently in the murder of 22 people in El Paso, uh, you know, has just been. Uh, a conspiracy movie, you know, has, has brought us to this place uh, where people uh, do accept this alternate re- reality, where people really uh, listen to the, the likes of Alex Jones and other conspiracy theorists uh, and think that uh, he's right on. He understands what's really going on.
3: And people think, well, that was 25 years ago, and reality—it doesn't seem like much has changed. In fact, it seems like it's only gotten worse.
1: Well I think it has gotten worse, and the reason well, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, one of the reasons is is that you know we are not, when we talk about the radical right in the United States, we're talking about a real movement. This is not as Fox News and President Trump would have us believe you know, a bunch of people who are off their meds who need to mm-hmm. see a shrink. Yeah. Uh or some people who have watched too much uh too many violent video games, mm-hmm. played too many violent games, or, you know, smoked too much pot or whatever it may be. But these are literally the explanations uh you hear from the far right. You know, the reality is is that this is a real movement and it is based on real things that are happening uh in the world. And what I'm talking about essentially is uh, the huge changes that globalization uh, has wrought on not only American society, but on most of European societies as well. And what I mean by that is very large demographic changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are on course to, by 2043 or 2044, lose a white majority in the United States uh, for the first time, obviously, since the colonial era. Uh, so, you know, that means real changes, also, uh, the financial aspects of globalization have meant uh, that, you know, huge sectors of our economy are in trouble. You know, just ask a steel worker, an auto worker, somebody who used to work in a textile plant. Mm-hmm. So while some people are, you know, doing very well and the, the you know, income disparity uh, seems to, well, it doesn't seem to, it does grow uh, every year. Uh, you know, there are enormous sections of the population are hurting. And and the third Back to that is the idea that we're also seeing massive cultural changes. And, you know, the simplest example of that uh, is same-sex marriage, right? I I 20 years ago, uh, same-sex marriage, right? I mean, whatever one thought about it, it sure uh, sure didn't seem possible that that was going to be the law of the land, and here we are, with same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. So, essentially, what I'm arguing is that we as a society really with the Western Hemisphere uh, is going through an enormous backlash uh, against these changes and we've seen yeah. this at other points uh, in our history but this is a particularly big one so you know that I think uh, is the basis really for what's happening and, and now we have uh, an added and really scary element, which is the role that Donald Trump in this country has played. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trump has normalized these ideas. You know, I don't need to run through the roster of, uh, you know, there were very fine people in Charlottesville among the Nazis and so on, and you know all of the ways that Trump has encouraged the radical right uh, and made it clear, if not precisely that he's one of them, but certainly that he's sympathetic uh, to white nationalist views. And, you know, we are not the only country in which this is happening. You know, That's when you right. see, uh, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary or, or the leaders of Poland uh, or most of the Scandinavian countries, the UK now with Brexit, all of these countries are going through real paroxysms uh, related to the way the world is changing. And, you know, it, it seems indisputable to me that we're seeing a rise of a, you know, li- the sort of liberal democratic order is in danger in the Western world. Uh, we're seeing the rise of authoritarian movements and leaders uh all over uh and you know while this is not the 1920s or the 1930s this is not Weimar Germany uh it's a scary moment and i think without question uh it could and very likely will get worse before it gets better
3: and that brings up a really good point when you see a lot of this stuff going on in the news a common response that you'll hear is Oh, this is just the final death throes of this movement because they know that their time is ending. When it seems to me much more like they're learning to they're getting a little smarter and a little more organized. And it's not the last gasp of some, you know, minor minor problem in America. It's something that's actually growing and getting worse.
1: Yes, it's resurgent. No, I I very much agree with that. Um, You know, it's, uh, I mean, ultimately, it may be the last gasp, but we're talking about 20, 30 years down the line. That's right. Uh, You know, when when the United States loses its white majority, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons to hope uh, that the country will kind of right itself, you know, when you look at polls. Uh, of youth, for instance, you know, the the vast, vast majority of American young people have no problem at all with interracial relationships, right? The Mm -hmm. big bugaboo of the Klan, for instance. Uh, So those kinds of things uh, suggest that, you know, perhaps we'll take a turn for the better. But I don't think it's a certain thing at all. And I do think that So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: There are some real similarities to the 1920s. Mm-hmm. You know, in the 1920s, you know, I think uh, people who are sort of lightly read in history, well, the 1920s, that was the roaring 20s, it was the jazz age, we had these, you know, sexy gals called flappers and, you know, nice outfits, mm-hmm. and, you know, everybody was dancing in the streets. But in fact, uh, you know, it was a similar time in that the society was incredibly divided. Uh, huge changes were going on. Women got the right to vote in 1920. The 1920 census, first, that showed that America had was the majority of Americans were living in cities. It was becoming an urban country instead of a rural country. You know, this, the 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 uh, uh, the Stokes trial uh, uh, over religious. Uh, fundamentalism happened then, so religion was under attack. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of a uh, corollary of women getting the right to vote was women moving out of their homes and into jobs, factories. You know, sex was out in the open in a way uh, that hadn't happened. So what I'm saying is that there were huge kind of fundamental changes going on in the 20s. And as a result, as one result, uh, we saw the emergence, uh, just as in Germany and in many European countries, of proto-fascist groups, groups like the Silver Shirts, uh, people like Father Coughlin, the, the infamous anti-Semitic so-called radio priest, yeah. uh, and most dramatically, the rise of the largest clan, the so-called Second Era Clan uh, in American history. There were four million members of the Ku Klux Klan in 1925. So, uh, and ultimately, that uh, uh, resulted. Uh, in the 1924 Immigration Act, uh, which was this incredibly racist, uh, quota system, which essentially limited, uh, immigration to the United States to northern European countries, uh, in particular, uh, with the aim of keeping out primarily Catholics, but also Jews. W- but to just finish the argument, uh, what happened, though, uh, was it, in the course of the 30s after, uh, uh, the Great Crash in 1929 and the Depression, which kind of bottomed out by about 1932, uh, was that Roosevelt was elected, uh, FDR, and the New Deal was put into place and things started to get quite a lot better in this country. Uh, and then, of course, towards, uh, uh, as we got into the late 30s and early 40s, the United States, uh, entered World War II and fought, uh, with the Allies against, you know, the most explicitly racist and anti-Semitic and barbaric, uh, regime you could imagine. So what I would say is, is that there was a kind of fork in the road, uh, in the 20s and early 30s. Uh, Germany went one way, way down that, that fork, took one turn. Uh and the United States did a lot better. You know, I'm not suggesting that the United States in nineteen forty five or nineteen fifty was, you know, such a wonderful place and Mm -hmm. you know, obviously there were Red Scares and the McCarthy era and so on, but it was in a hell of a lot better shape than it would have been had it gone down essentially the fascist path. So, you know, again, not to say that this is some kind of direct analog to the nineteen twenties, but there's a similarity. Society under huge stress, major, major changes uh, in some places, uh, uh, very typically in Washington, those changes not really being acknowledged, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot going on in terms of helping the people, uh, for instance, who've lost their jobs in auto and steel and textiles and all the rest. Uh, you know, and you also see the angst uh, felt among white Americans in the opioid crisis, in the uh, you know the fact that white people aren't living any longer, right? The rise in, in death ages ha- has stopped, uh, uh, and so on. So we're we're at a really pivotal moment, I think, uh, and that's really what all this means.
3: Well, a pivotal moment was World War two which seemed to kind of make it very clear that Nazis were bad, and I don't know how we got confused about that over the years to where now, as you were saying, the president's referring to some of them as very fine people but I think that one of the things that may have happened from World War II and you might know better than I would that it seemed to shame a lot of this into the shadows more than it was before and now they seem to be coming out of the shadows what what do you think is that's right the the driving that because you know one of the things that appears to have motivated Timothy McVeigh were the Turner Diaries and that became sort of a I don't know, a, a mantra or a, something that people would look to for guidance about how to deal with this issue. And now the guy who wrote that even regrets doing it. But it's something that used to be more, it was ostracized and shamed into the shadows, but now it's sort of considered more of an alternative point of view. And how the hell did that happen?
1: Well, a few things. First of all, let me, let me just say briefly a little correction you were thinking of the author of the Anarchist Cookbook. Uh, the author oh, yeah, of the Turner Diaries yes, never never took it yeah. back in any <laughs> yeah. way, and he's a flat out—he's dead now. That's uh, he died right. Died in 2002, uh, William Pierce. But he was an, an, a full-on Nazi, you know, right. uh, yeah. and, and a very uh, bright man who ran a very serious and scary organization. Um, you know, look, I the Turner Diaries are important. Uh, you know, they're they're often referred to as the Bible of the radical Rights uh... there are other books uh, uh... that are important uh... in the development of kind of thinking on the radical right. uh... it is true at the same time that the internet and social media uh... has kind of accelerated uh... the 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 propagation of this kind of propaganda it's made it much easier to get out to uh... millions and millions of people as opposed to a few hundred at a time but all of those things you know in in a sense are a little bit superficial you know, the Turner Diaries did not create uh, the white supremacist movement uh, in America or the yes, resurgent yes. white supremacist movement. They played a part just as the algorithms on the Internet play a part. Uh, I think probably more important than either of those things is the role that Trump uh, and much of the political rights uh, in this country and in Europe as well are playing. Uh, you know, so again, I, I would come back to say, yes, yes, all of that is true. Uh, but, you know, how did they come back? Uh, well, you know, part of it is, uh, well, uh, you know, ultimately I really do think it's kind of socioeconomic basis of the changes we're seeing. But, uh, there are very many important things that have happened. Uh, it's absolutely true that coming out of World War two right, I mean, to be a National Socialist, to be a Nazi, uh, I mean, that was to be a traitor, right, a kind of death penalty offense. Uh, and, and, and besides that, people who didn't have much interest in anti-Semitism or racism, you know, even, uh, you know, people, sort of regular people didn't mean much to them. Even they were pretty much universally horrified when the American army uh, marched into Dachau and, and you know, the truth about Auschwitz and the rest of the camps came out. Mm-hmm. But the radical rights uh, has been working on that issue uh, for a long time. Uh, You know, and that is where things like Holocaust denial became very important.
3: That's right. Uh,
1: There was the leader of the first major uh, post-war American fascist grouping, uh, a group called the American Nazi Party, was a guy named George Lincoln Rockwell. Mm -hmm. And Rockwell did some very important things uh, in terms of trying to make uh, the position of the radical right, and specifically National Socialism, more palatable. The first one was he adopted... Uh, uh, the idea that, well, he let, let did several things. One of them was he expanded the idea of what it was to be white, right? Real National Socialists, Hitler viewed Southern Europeans and Slavs and all of these other groups as not real Aryans. Mm-hmm. They too were, you know, untermenschen, sort of under people, uh, lesser human beings, subhumans. Uh, Rockwell recognized that white people in America, were there were an awful lot of ethnic white people. A lot of them were Southern Europeans and Slavs and so on. Mm -hmm. So Rockwell expanded the idea of what it was to be white. He also, and this is critically important, was one of the very first uh, ideologues uh, and thinkers uh, pushing the idea of Holocaust denial, right? It's all a dirty lie. Uh the Germans never did any of those things and you know, some of these people are really quite something uh today. You know, Auschwitz had swimming pools and uh you know, the (laughs) inmates used to play soccer with the guards and it was all a great time, (laughs) you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, and thirdly, Rockwell adopted a particular theology. Uh he was not like real national socialists everywhere. He was an atheist uh completely, but as a cynical matter he understood that Americans were far more religious than Europeans. Uh, uh... and specifically christian christians so he uh, this christian identity not to get into it too much but essentially uh... it is a kind of heretical reading of the old testament to say that uh... Eve in the garden of eden did not merely take a bite of an apple from the tree of knowledge you know if you only could read the original aramaic you would know the truth and the truth so they say uh... is that eve actually had sex literally with the serpent right? Mm -hmm. So Eve's first child, Cain, is the first Jew. So, you know, it's very complicated and and bizarre, but the idea is that uh, we've got it all wrong, Uh, Jews are actually the descendants of Satan himself, uh, and it's really uh, the godly white men who are the chosen people, and so on. So, in other words, he kind of wrapped uh, his hatred in, in holiness. So, you know, that's a long answer to a short question, it's only a little piece of the picture, but what I'm saying is that there have been real changes on the radical right and this has permitted uh what I would describe as over the last 30 or 40 years as the the Nazification of the radical right. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you know, when you think back to the original plan, I mean the original plan didn't love Jews to be sure, on uh, the second year plan of the 1920s, uh you, you know, pretty explicitly rejected Jews, but the primary enemy was black people. Uh, they were seen as the primary threat and so on. Yeah. Today, if you look at most of these groups, uh, the, the large majority of them see, don't like black people, don't like Muslims, don't like gay people, and a you know, whole laundry list of other people they don't like, but ultimately they see the, the satanic Jew, the perfidious Jew, yeah. uh, as being behind all of the other evils in the world. So you know this is an idea that's been nurtured uh, for a very long time, 50, 60 years now, uh, and uh, we're far enough away from the war uh, that it seems believable. God help us, to at least uh, you know a fair number of young people uh, that the Holocaust is a myth uh, and so on. And so I think that has a lot to do with uh, these, you know, the spread of these essentially uh, national socialist ideas.
3: Well, thanks for correcting me. I guess it was too much to believe that that guy would have retracted what he believed in.
1: No, no. William Pierce would never retract any. He was a serious guy. William Pierce had had been an associate professor of physics uh, when he decided uh, that he couldn't in, in Oregon. When he decided that he couldn't stand the sight. This is in the late '60s uh, of some of his white colleagues going out with black women or black men, and so on. Yeah, you know, he was so disgusted by that he became, you know, kind of completely wrapped up uh in national socialist ideas and ultimately left his teaching position uh and started a very serious organization that originally based in Arlington, Virginia, but for the better part of thirty or forty years, uh in West Virginia up on a mountaintop.
2: Wow. Um so do you see how 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 are we going to gain anything back at this point um, when people are listening to uh, news and Internet feeds of their choice and no longer open to other ideas?
1: Well, it's not an easy answer. You know, I, I, If I had an easy answer to that, I'd be rich or famous, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think a part of it uh, is simply that we have to live through this, very tough transition from one kind of a society to another one which I think we're you know, indisputably going through mm-hmm. uh, other pieces of it I think are you know and, and this sounds like Pollyanna stuff but you know our, our communities are really fractured uh, in, in terrifically uh, uh, scary ways and so there is a hell of a lot of bridge building uh, that needs to go on uh, you know, and it's, it's obviously been a very difficult time because, you know, at the same time as you have this very reactionary movement, it starts with the Tea Party, uh, you know, now here we are, uh, we also have the rise of, you know, the Me Too movement, of Black Lives Matter, and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of, of bridge building to be done. You know, I'm not really, <laughs> much of a bridge builder i i also think as a personal matter that you know there's much to be said for uh outing these people mm-hmm. uh you know that's you know i i worked uh doing that kind of thing for for 20 years at the southern poverty law center uh however one begins to wonder i mean these days you out somebody uh you, you know as a white nationalist or you know that kind of thing and you know sometimes they get kicked off the air or they have to resign their seats and sometimes they don't yeah. So i don't know uh... you know and and added into all of this you know, first of all we now have this you know incredible impeachment process going on but looking at the longer term uh... i think the outlook is scary uh... for some other reasons uh... you know i think of global warming and the near certainty uh, then in a very short time, in a matter of a couple of decades, we're going to have huge, huge refugee populations all over the world. Uh, and obviously that is going to uh, simply redouble the kind of pressures that people are going through. So I guess that's not a very hopeful answer, uh, but but that's you know mm-hmm. where I'm at, thinking about all of this.
2: Yeah, because I just see things like... Uh uh, you know, uh, just twenty years ago, you could have David Duke running, and as soon as people find out that he's uh, part of a, you know, hate group, um, he's he's gone. But to, nowadays, uh, you can be a, an open neo-Nazi and and run for um, any sort of government job.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, although let's to to be fair, thinking about David Duke back in, in the eighties and nineties. You know, I mean, Duke Duke got over 600,000 votes mm-hmm. uh, running for governor of Louisiana, and he got uh, similar numbers of votes. Uh, I think in one of his elections, he got something like 60% of the white vote in Louisiana. So, you know, it, it wasn't so easy. It wasn't like once he was outed, uh, uh, you know, that was the end of Dave Duke. He had to slink away into some wholesome place. Yeah. Uh, you guys probably remember uh, there was a very – he was running against Edwin Edwards, who was known – uh as a corrupt politician and there, uh, the, during the election uh the, a very very famous bumper sticker appeared which said vote for the crook it's important in other <laughs> words <laughs> vote for the crook edwin Edward edwards uh because voting for david duke you know is vastly worse and and edwards did win in fact in the end
3: but david duke certainly didn't go away he's one of the president's biggest supporters and he's even talking about what running for senate or yeah. something
1: Okay. Yeah, I mean his run. I mean he's finished politically. He'll never win anything anymore. Yeah. Uh he's simply been too outed. I mean, you know, he wrote a book about Jewish supremacism and so on. I mean he's really out there. Mm-hmm. Uh but you know, while we're speaking of David Duke, uh, let me just say uh in terms of the, the real hypocrisy and lying from President Trump, that, you know, during his uh uh... election campaign and afterwards he was asked again and again if he repudiated david duke who was saying you know vote for him you know anyone who doesn't vote for trump is a race traitor any white man who doesn't vote for trump is a race traitor and so on uh... and trump made the claim on several occasions that he really couldn't denounce reporters saying, you know, do you, David, do you denounce David Duke? His views, you know, he says he endorses you. Well, yeah. I can't really do that because I don't really know who David Duke is. I don't know yeah. anything about him. Um, and that was, if I may say it plainly, a bald-faced lie. And I mm. say that because uh, Trump, in his first, when he was first thinking about running for president. He was thinking of running on the Reform Party ticket, the, the party, you know, started by Ross Perot. Uh and at that time the Reform Party had become very right wing. Uh and he Trump ultimately said no, he would not accept a spot as uh, running for president on the Reform Party ticket because David Duke, the neo Nazi and anti Semite, would have been his running mate. So, you know, he comes back ten, twelve <laughs> years later and claims he doesn't know anything about Duke. Yeah. Uh, you know it's just it's an and I mean dog whistle hardly covers it, right? I mean, it's a direct yeah. signal uh, to the radical right that I'm not against you guys
2: so what's what's the final outcome what do you what do you uh, hope people um, realize and and come out of um, in their minds uh, from the work people like you do?
1: Well, I mean, look, ultimately, what I wish people would do uh... is learn to think critically i mean you know uh... sometimes you'll read stories about uh... fake news and conspiracy theories on the internet and so on and often the authors of these articles make it sound like you know kids need to be phds in order to sort out uh... what's true and what's not true on the internet Mm and i guess i find that kind of silly you know i think that if you have two or three brain cells to rub together and pay attention uh... when you're reading the internet it becomes fairly obvious uh at least in most cases uh what is ridiculous uh you know for instance the claim that the new york times you know lies all the time about trump and you know <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, prints things uh and quotes from him that he never said and so on uh, you know but in any case i think that that's probably the single most important thing you know we live in a very complex world and you know conspiracy theories uh are essentially uh, something that, uh, not very smart people use to think about a world that's very complex. It takes a complicated world and makes it simple. You know, aha, I know why all this is happening. It's because the Jews, or yeah. the black people, or the Muslims, right? There's a secret plot. I mean, for instance, you know, conspiracy theory like the idea that Muslims all over America are plotting to impose Sharia law uh, on the criminal courts of America. You know, it's, it's patently false in about three minutes uh, of looking around uh, with the help of Google on the Internet, and you can understand that. Uh, you know, the fact is is that Sharia law could not be imposed uh, on American courts, absolutely no way, mm-hmm. under the Constitution. It would be completely 100% unconstitutional. But you have huge numbers uh, of uh, individuals and these organizations, uh, example, you know, Muslim-hating organizations, that keep propounding this as fact so i just think people need to pay a little of attention there is such a thing as truth uh... you know sometimes it's uh, a little obscure and hard to get to uh... but i don't think that you know the fact that people uh, spout uh, all kinds of theories on the internet uh, gives us an excuse to pay no attention to what's really going on i mean you know it is our obligation it seems to me uh, as citizens of the world let alone the country uh, that we pay attention and care about what's going on around us. And a part of that is understanding what is true and what is false in an era when falsity, uh, uh, you know, is incredibly widespread.
2: So, now, have you got a website or a place people can uh, look for you and maybe uh, perhaps uh, get um, get some information from you?
1: Sure. Uh, my website is Mark. m-a-r-k-a-p-o-t-o-k dot net and i should say you know it's kind of a promotional website i'm with a speakers bureau and so on but people can contact me through that site and i'd be happy to respond
2: well fantastic any projects coming up or are you doing any uh, new books or anything
1: well i just came back from uh, a big event in washington uh put on by the National Counter Terrorism Center, which is the government agency. So, you know, right now, at this very moment I'm thinking of writing something about it, uh, you know, because I was really struck by essentially what the conference was about was how can, now that we recognize, even we the government, recognize that white supremacist domestic terrorism is a larger threat uh than Islamist terrorism, uh, you know, what can we do? What can the government do? And what really struck me was how you know It just seemed to me that there is a lack of recognition on the part of the government or a whole lot of people uh, that, as I keep trying to say, this is a real social movement. So there was an awful lot of talk about technical fixes, you know, can we change the algorithms on Google, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, or, you know, if we pass a law saying, you know, that domestic terrorism, quote-unquote, is illegal, uh, will that help? And, you know, I, I guess my own feeling is these things are small technical fixes, and they're not really uh, grappling with the reality of what's uh, going on. So, you know, what might that be? I don't, you, you know, for instance, helping, helping the people who have been hurt so much uh, financially, uh, economically, by globalization. In any case, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm, I write sometimes for the Daily Beast. Uh, I do some speaking, and, you know, slowly, slowly, I'm starting to work on a book. So, yes, that's true. Fantastic.
3: Well, well, we really appreciate your work.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, our guest has been... Well,
1: Mark. thanks so much for saying so. It's been Mark Potok.
2: Our guest has been Mark Potok. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, a real pleasure, and I hope we do it again sometime.
0: To find out more about our show,
1: guests, or to listen to past shows
0: from our archive,
1: please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com show is over for now was it as good for you as it was for me
0: well good night this has been a production of something weird media
3: i'll be back a powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend
0: wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts
3: everywhere. ACAST.com
0: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com